the people of God. We thank you, God, for another day to lift high the person and work of Jesus. And Lord, we are thankful for just that in this place, uh, that there are both people who are followers of you and there are people who are yet to follow you. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray for the non-believer that in this place today that you would save them, that you would redeem them, that you would justify them, that you would take them from darkness into light. Lord, we pray for the believer that is gathered here today. Lord, may you encourage them, whatever situations, whether it be praise or problem, God, may you speak directly into their issues, Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, helping them to understand the, the, the person and work of Jesus and who we are in Jesus, that our faith is not our own, but our faith is in the faith of the one who has perfect faith, and his name is Jesus. And so, God, we lift high your name, Jesus. We exalt your name, Jesus, Lord. We ask that your spirit be here in a special way, Lord. We know that it came and it dwells inside of our very hearts. And yet, we ask you, Jesus, in a very specific dwelling of your Holy Spirit, that you would reign upon us in this place today. Lord, that you would speak into the lives, God, of every person who is here to listen. And Jesus, that you would speak into the lives of our children as they also hear the gospel this morning. Lord, just reign supremely, God. May we not just be a church or do church things or be cultural Christians, but Lord Jesus, we ask you that you would just move mightily in our presence, Lord, as we even drove through the town of Bowling Green to get here today. We ask you, Jesus, that you would move in our city, Lord, that many saints who are gathered in facilities all over this town today, God, may you be made much of, and may you do a great and powerful work in our city. God, we ask for unity of the body, the body of believers, Jesus. We ask that you would show us in clarity, Father, what you would have for us. Lord, I pray, Jesus, that you would preach louder than this preacher today. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for gathering with us here today. My name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission. And on behalf of those of us who call Mission Church our church home, thank you guys for uh, gathering with us. Today we continue a sermon series that we've been doing um, on the book of Romans from chapter 12 through verse uh, chapter 16. And in that, we are looking at this idea of what it means to be a gospel-centered church. That in view of the gospel, as chapter 12 tells us, that we should now have a very practical life, that our lives in following after Jesus should have very practical things because of the gospel that has radically changed us and is continuing to transform us. Remember, this church in Rome, Paul has never visited, yet he has heard great things about their faith. And, and the, the renown of Jesus and the faith of this church is spreading now throughout the known world. And Paul has heard about it because he's kind of like the celebrity preacher of the time, the celebrity church planter. Everybody knows and has heard about this guy named Paul who was a, a persecutor of Christians and has now become a Christian. And simultaneously, God is spreading churches like wildfire throughout the known world. As disciples are made, churches are planted, and it sounds very familiar to what we have a desire to do um, here at Mission Church as well. As always, whenever you're reading a passage of Scripture, any form of literature really, um, it's important to understand the context. 
If you look at the context of this church, you've got kind of two different groups of people coming together now, being unified in one common person, purpose and person. His name is Jesus. And so in this community of faith in Rome, you had these Jewish people who are had the Old Testament, they were raised extremely religious, and also you have these Gentiles um, who lived a, a very different lives from those of the Jews. You had these really religious, we would probably call them conservatives or fundamentals or uh, fundamentalists or fanatics even, um, contrasted with, with these Gentile believers who, you know, <laughs> had very liberal lives, even to the form of you know, having um, you know, relationships with temple prostitutes, sacrificing animals, sacrificing people. Um, all of this very different world now collide where? In the gathering of the church. In the gathering of the people of God. See, at the cross of Jesus, um, these two worldviews truly do collide. See, as, as much as we don't like to admit it, um, our past education, upbringing, the way we were raised has great influence uh, on us. Um, I don't know if you're at that stage yet, but has any of you ever had that moment where you were doing something, working, driving, um, talking to your kids, and you go, oh, I just acted like my parents, <laughs> right? Anybody been there? I have. I mean, I've, got, I've, I've seen myself make these looks, and I'm like, I just look like my dad. The world is coming to an end. All right? We had these moments when we don't even realize it, because a lot of kids are like, man, when I grow up and leave my parents' house, I'm never going to act like them. Only to realize you act like them. And most of the problems you have with your parents um, are problems you have with yourself because you're now responding a lot like they do. See, our teaching, our upbringing, our environment, all of these things have great influence on our lives even now. See, we've seen this even in church. You've got people, different walks of life, different opinions, different views, and yet because of the gospel, look around this room. You're here today. Okay, But that doesn't mean that you left all of your past thoughts and opinions at the door. They're deeply embedded into us. The way in which we had a life, um, it's difficult, can be difficult for us to detox from those perspectives in order to honor God from a biblical and gospel perspective. These things are in us, our philosophies, our worldviews, and a lot of times these differences cause a lot of conflict and issues um, within our lives. I mean, this is probably seen most in marriage. Okay, You have two people. Um, if they're not cohabitating, if they're not living together, if they're not sleeping together, all these sorts of things, you got two different ways of life, two different ways of folding the towels, um, getting toothpaste out of the toothpaste holder. Some like to squeeze it. Others of us like to roll it. Whatever it is, you've got these two worldviews. And from in a matter of a few moments, probably about 45 minutes, you go from not living together, um, not uh, doing all of these things, to all of a sudden you're on a vacation together, which everybody fakes it 
for that week, everything's awesome, and then you come home and try to fold towels together, and your mama taught you one way to fold them, she believes another way is the way to fold them, and you have your first conflict. You're not folding the towels right. What do you mean I'm not folding the towels right? And then, if you're like me, you quickly learn to fold them the way your wife wants you to, all right? And so, we had these two ideas. Um, even for Laura and I, um, Laura and I are our best friends. There's no doubt about that. And in the major things of life, um, we are pretty streamlined on that. On the minor things of life, Laura and I talked about, we were talking about it on our date night last night. Um, we are oil and water on minor things. I mean, we do, not, we do not get up thinking about the same things. We do not go to bed thinking about the same things, the way that she would do it, anything, from filling up the, the dishwasher, I think she does it wrong. Alright? She just got I do it. Alright? I mean, everything, on the minors, we are completely polar opposites. It's even got a little running joke with me and my family, I've even heard, I even made fun of us, is whenever Laura does something that's minor that I think is ridiculous, I always say this, and you've probably been around us, Laura. And we all know exactly what that means. All right? And so Ava sometimes will be like, <laughs> Daddy said, Laura. <laughs> all right? These differences. You've got different thoughts, different worldviews coming together in one place. This is true of the church. Now, in our culture and in these areas, um, these shadows, we have a tendency to call gray areas. That in and of itself is a problem. We don't even know how to spell gray. Is it G-R-A-Y or G-R-E-Y? Guess what? It's both. It's both. Right there, immediately, we had this conflict because we have something that is called a gray area. It's a shadow. Um, and the reason why it's really difficult is that it's not necessarily that it's good or that it's bad. But biblically speaking... These are gray areas because we don't have a direct text that we can go to that would encourage us to go one way or the other. It's kind of a guess. It's kind of a... I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know on this. You know, Scripture is very clear on a lot of issues. I don't know how you get any clearer than do not kill. <laughs> There's not a lot of Greek interpretation or Hebrew that I can throw at you to twist that. That's, that's what it means. Do not steal. All right? That's, again, pretty cut and dry for us. Um, even in last week when we saw in Romans chapter 13, verse 13, it says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We get pretty clear there. This is things that God wants us to uh, um, stay away from for our protection. He's warning us. He's taking care of us. He's setting boundaries. But also, Scripture tells us there's things that we should do, right? Like, we should pray. We should um, read the Scripture. We should love one another, all right? So we see these ideas. Scripture is clear on some things about what we should not do to protect us and what we should do to have a full and abundant life in the person and work of Jesus. However, in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, um, we see this. It says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. 
See, here in this text, we automatically see that we as believers are to welcome people who are weaker in their faith than some of us others. Uh, and that we're not supposed to quarrel over opinions. Um, the original kind of language here that we see is that even in Scripture, it appoints to this idea of opinions, literally this term, I can't pronounce it, but it means moral neutrals. It's a gray area. It's an area that we just really don't know. And so it's not supposed to cause quarreling and bickering and division over these types of issues. It, it could be a, a variety of things from customs or ceremonies. Um, we have a tendency here at Mission to call them um, open-handed and closed-handed beliefs. So today we're going to explore this idea is how does the gospel, kind of in view of the gospel, looking at the gospel, filtering everything through the gospel, how do we interact with one another in these gray areas? Because there will be different thoughts about us that we think we're really strong and we'll think other people are really weak in this area and it causes tension and friction within the church and Paul is well, well aware of these sorts of things. Now, when we look at this, um, we here at Mission, it's not new to us, um, but this idea of open-handed, closed-handed things. If you've been with us before, gone through membership, you've heard me talk some about this for Pastor Justin. Is that we believe that there are such things in Christendom that all churches, all believers, all over the world should close their fist around. All right? These are closed-handed beliefs. These are clear in Scripture. They should be unifying to us. These are the things that you fight over. That's why it's a closed fist. You hold these things tightly. If somebody was to come in here, you know, did the whole scenario, put the gun to your head, renounce these things, or we're going to shoot you, if it's in that closed fist, then you should be willing to die. All right? These things are extremely important to us. There is something, and maybe we should get back to some of this, and some of our other brothers and sisters and other um, form or styles of expression of worship this morning are actually quoting these things, but it's something called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is believed to be originally written by the Apostles themselves, making this statement that, yes, there may be some fringe issues out here that are different from what we believe, but this is the core of all of Scripture is found in these truths. I believe there was even a Christian singer called Rich Mullins, I think he's since passed away, that wrote a song called The Creed or The Apostles' Creed. And you can look that up for your own listening enjoyment. But here's what the Apostles' Creed says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son and our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, He rose again and ascended into the heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic. Catholic there is the small C, not big C. Small C church means universal. That was what we were all called at one time. So don't freak out about the words. The Holy Catholic, meaning universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Those are the closed-handed things of what it means to be a believer. 
Those are things that we fight for. These are the essentials of what it means. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the creed, is the compact statement of faith of all of Scripture that if you were to squeeze it into one statement from Genesis to Revelation, um, I, many believe, and I would agree with them, that it's, it's things like the Apostles' Creed that it what and should hold us all together. These truths should unify us, strengthen us, um, we live, we fight, we die uh, for these truths. However, just like there's a close-handed idea, there's also this idea of open-handed issues. Okay, open-handed issues. Um, these are gray areas. These are non-essentials. And it appears from this chapter, Romans chapter 14, um, that Paul is speaking to these idea of gray areas. Specifically, there's become some tension within the Roman church over probably two things, and, and these probably weren't all the things, he was just using these as examples, but these two specific things on what should a Christian, a believer, eat and drink, alright, and what are the special days for believers, okay? And because of that, there was a tension saying uh, amongst the church specifically this issue over food. What should we eat? What should we not eat? What should we drink? What should we not drink? See, the Jewish believers, what do they have ideas about food? Is there some pretty strict eating rules there in the Old Testament? Yeah. I mean, you've grown up your entire life not eating bacon. To me, that's a version of hell I never want to experience. All right? The only thing better than bacon is bacon-wrapped bacon. And so you've been told your entire life you can't eat a pig. All right? And then all of a sudden you become a believer in Jesus. Does that mean automatically all that teaching leaves you? No, it doesn't. Then you got the Gentiles on their hand to hand. They've been wearing out the bacon. All right? They've been wearing it out. They eat bacon on everything. My personal preference, I'm glad to be a Gentile, right? So you have these two worlds colliding at this place, at this experience called the church. They're having a potluck dinner. All the, the Jewish now that believe in Jesus, what do they bring? They still bring kosher food to the potluck. What do the Gentiles bring? Catfish, bacon, shrimp, all these things. You know, a, a Jewish person, a real Jewish person can't eat a hamburger, because you can't mix meats, alright? And so if you take a cheeseburger and you put cheese on that hamburger, um, there, there's a conflicting idea of what is taking place here. It would be illegal, but you have a cookout for church and somebody makes hamburgers. What do you do? What happens at the church? This seems to be some of the issues that are taking place um, at this congregation. There are also other people who think these certain days, certain holidays, um, we should continue to celebrate. I've met modern Christians that feel that way about the feast that we see in the Old Testament. That why as Christians are we not still celebrating these feasts? Um, I have a, an aunt and uncle that are diehard General Baptist. And on Sunday, they still, and I think we should all be encouraged to have some sort of Sabbath. I'm all down with that. But they're extremely strict about the Sabbath. They told me one day that I could have some barn wood or something from their house. And they're like, whatever you do, though, don't come on Sunday. Because they didn't want me laboring or working on Sunday. 
Still a big deal. There are other believers out there, even Christians today, that hold to this day that, man, you do absolutely nothing. You are a, a blob on a wall somewhere on Sunday. Even some Christians to this day um, worship on um, Saturdays because they believe that that was the initial Sabbath for believers. So we see these issues are taking place in Paul as speaking into them and saying there needs to be patience and an understanding and a taking care of one another because you have people who are strong in some areas, you have some people who are some weak in some areas, and these gray areas are causing conflict. And so how should we interact with these differing opinions? So what happens typically in a church, in a congregation, um, most of those issues and divisions are not caused by theological truths. They're not caused by closed-handed things. By, let's do a survey this morning. How many of you guys have ever been a part of a church split or a leaving of a church that you can honestly say now, looking back over, was an open-handed issue? Anybody? Like the color of carpet, style of music, any of those sorts of things? Okay, a few of these. Most church splits do not take place over theological truths. Most of them are over some minor issue that has become a major issue within this congregation. See, at first glance, it can seem really childish and, and elementary to us, um, but the modern churches itself, like I just said, still struggle with this. Um, in my hometown, uh, there's a church that I will not mention, um, extremely large, uh, well attended for probably hundreds of years. All right? And in the last month um, has split. And the reason what it boils down to, and the person that I know that's heavily involved in ministry and pastoring and overseeing a bunch of churches, this is the way that he described this church to me. He said the church died a long time ago. They just hadn't had the funeral yet. Okay? And this church in the last month has now split. And it all came to head, ladies and gentlemen, over music. You had these older people, the churches, a lot of people have left, a lot of younger people have left. But the older people, what do they have a lot of? Money. There are millions of dollars in this church that has been left to it or is still there because you have this older group of people that are funding it to take place. And yet this church is dying. They have a few younger couples that have stuck it out praying for change. And recently they've gone through a transition where they were trying to go from like real staunch hymnal traditional singing out of hymns um, to a more contemporary praise and worship or a blended worship experience. And it boiled over into a fight. And now that pastor has left that church. Most all of the young people have now left that church and I think this morning they're meeting for the first time as a new church. While all the older people are still meeting at the old church. Okay? This stuff still happens. The reason why people leave the church. You guys have been around me. You've heard this. I, my last church, I pretty much had a guy leave because of donuts. Um, he got so ticked over donuts. And yet I kept going through the Bible and he didn't like this um, when I couldn't find the word donut. I mean, I'm looking at the coordinates in the back. Uh, where donut is not there. It was an open-handed, minor issue. But for that dude, buddy, he was getting his Greenfields <laughs> every Sunday morning. I mean, it was, it was bad. It was 
really rough. Again, the colors of carpet, what people should do, how they should act, the order of church, all of these ideas seem extremely childish. Unless it's you who have a deep belief in that sort of thing. See, overall, these tensions, fighting, uh, division, keep us from doing the most important thing. And that's what I believe that Paul is saying about this in all of this chapter. You see, see, sin, Satan, and death tries to creep into our minds and get us paranoid, distracted, and is like a cancer. Like Jesus would say, a small piece of yeast affects the entire batch. And the way that sin, Satan, and death does that is not through major concepts and biblical truth that we should be fighting over, but small little things that become really, really big things. And they ultimately will distract us from the mission. From the mission. This is true. It's true in our lives, and we must be extremely careful. Instead of being about God and His mission, our churches have become places where being cynical and dumping on one another or fighting over issues and practices that Scripture really doesn't say is clear. They just don't say. And so we are free to have an open opinion about a lot of things because we simply don't know. All right. Now, in that, I'm not saying that non-essentials aren't important. I'm just saying they're not important enough to get mad at, ticked over, and divide and fight over. I think we need to have these discussions. All right? I had a person tell me one time that when it comes to the book of Genesis, this is what I believe. God did it. All right? How he did all of that, I'm not really clear on. Okay? But I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I'm a full-born creation. I believe in creation and that God created. How He did that, whether it was seven literal days or how, what all that means, I, I'm just, honestly, I'm not there. I, I don't know where I am. Okay? Jesus coming back. I just know that He's doing it. I don't have any charts for you. Alright? I have any scary pictures to show you. I just know that Jesus is coming back back. And yet, you will find brothers and sisters in Christ who really want to fight and divide over those things. Alright? When, one, we weren't there at creation, and two, we're not at the end yet. Alright? And you've got to be willing to say to people, man, I was wrong, or I'm growing in this, or let's push back on each other over this without causing dividing lines. Why? Because when we do, when we start to divide, we get away from the mission of God. Think of all the resources that have been wasted. All the once amazing churches that have now disbanded because of sin creeping in in minor, minor issues. Now, when we see these sorts of things, um, it's important as we even see here in the book of Romans um, where Paul says um, in verses 13 through 23, all right. We see this section where he's going back and forth and he's talking more about um, these special days. He's talking more about eating and drinking and these sorts of things. Um, in that, Paul explains to the Roman church, don't divide over food, drink, and days. Don't use these gray areas to cause others to stumble. Let me paint a quick picture of that. From my, what I can see in Scripture, 
is. Um, in regards, let's use drinking alcohol as an example this morning. I don't think that we can take from Scripture and see that it is wrong um, for an adult who is responsible to take a drink. I don't see that in Scripture. I think we can see clearly that Jesus drank it, he drank wine, and he made the best kind you could ever drink. All right? Scripture in the book of Revelation tells that we're going to have this marriage supper of the Lamb. There's this picture of a great celebration, and there will be wine, and, and this beautiful land kind of uh, foreshadowing we see in the Old Testament, a land flowing of milk and honey, that there will be a great feast, that there will be great eating for us who are his sons and daughters. Okay? Now, with that, does that mean that all Christians should drink an alcoholic beverage? No. We have in this room, we have people who um, responsibly, and probably some irresponsibility, uh, irresponsibly, um, drink alcoholic beverage. Okay? Those who are laughing are the irresponsible ones. That's why they're laughing. We also have teetotalers, right? Teetotalers, wow. Um, Teetotalers, right? Those are people who absolutely abstain from it. Like you see a, a beer commercial come on the television, you turn the channel. Um, I mean, you're a hardcore. Your conviction is you should not ever have a drink as a Christian. Right? Now, do you see the conflict when those two worlds collide? Let me speak into that in view of the gospel. If you're an alcoholic, you have no business being anywhere around it. If you consistently see yourself getting drunk, you have no business being anywhere around it. My friends who are former alcoholics for a long time could not be anywhere near that stuff because it caused them to crave it, to long for it, um, to desire it. And you are causing your brother or sister to stumble if you guys go out on a Friday night and they have an alcohol problem and you as brothers and sisters in Christ are partaking of the fruit of the vine and they're there you're causing them to stumble. You're leading them to sin. This is an issue. Paul's addressing that. All right? You shouldn't use your liberty in order to make others sin and wrestle with these things. Okay? You have to be very cautious about that. All right? If you come to my house... You're not drinking alcoholic beverage at my house. It's not because I don't believe that I have the liberty to do that. Or that even you don't have the liberty to do that. But in my house, I want to protect you. I want to be protected as well. And so you're going to get water. <laughs> Alright? Because I don't drink soda either. So it's like lemonade, water, coffee. Okay? We give up some of our liberties. And this is where our other brothers and sisters, man, if you feel like you're strong and you don't have this issue with alcohol, all right, you need to also be willing and be humble enough and be gospel-centered enough to give up your freedoms for the sake of the kingdom of God. You've got to be willing to do that because it's our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me address another one really quickly. Modesty. All right? Some of you dudes need to put on shirts when you come to church. I'm <laughs> joking. Your biceps are showing. They're causing me to stumble. All right, whatever. 
But let me, let me talk about modesty real quick. Because modesty, it's a tough thing. Now we do see in Scripture, ladies, you're supposed to dress modest, right? However, compared to biblical times, none of you in this room are dressed modestly. So what does that look like for us? Why is it important for every time that you come together, whenever you leave the house, unless you are only there with your husband, for you to look in the mirror and go, man, am I going to cause anyone to stumble over what I am wearing? Okay? You only, if you got it, you flaunt it. Only for him. Only for one. Not for all of us. Okay? I mean, it's a real issue because it's, it's very hard to define for us because we're talking about probably most of these believers are being fully covered, all right? And now we make skinny jeans, pajama jeans, tight jeans, jeans with bedazzles on the bum. I mean, this whole deal. If you have a word on your hind end, ladies, we are reading the word, all right? If you can see it in the mirror, guess what? We are looking at it. It's causing us to stumble. It's a real issue. But it's blurry. Because it's hard for us to define what is modern modesty. And we want to protect each other. We want to watch out for one another. And yet we don't want to judge, as Paul is saying here, but you need to understand what judgment is. Judgment is not saying something is right or wrong. Judgment is saying heaven or hell based on that issue. Judgment is walking into a restaurant, seeing a brother in Christ, sister in Christ, having an adult beverage, and determining that they're going to hell for what they're doing. Do you see the difference? And what does Jesus tell us to do? What does Paul tell us to do in the Scripture? Don't do that. But be very cautious for the sake of of your brothers and sisters, that you love them more than you... I mean, that's why I don't wear white beater tank top things to preach in, because it would, it would make you stumble over my belly, not because I'm 12, all right? <laughs> um, I mean, but there, there are just boundaries here. There are smart choices to make in order to preserve unity, not cause division, for that the sake of the mission will go Forward. Now, in view of the gospel, quickly, how should we respond to these gray areas? There was a, a quote that has been attributed to um, Martin Luther, but it was an, another guy that actually said it. Um, and it was written during, it's a German Lutheran theologian, so there's, it's understandable why there's that conflict there. Um, but it was written by another guy, I can't pronounce his name, and he, he wrote this tract during um, the focusing on Christian unity. Uh, during the Thirty Years' War. Alright, so you've got a major war that's enveloped. You've got Christians now that are engaging in this. And he wrote this tract talking about Christian unity in the midst of war. Alright, so how do we find peace in the midst of war? And this is what he said. In essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. And in all things, we have charity. Mission Church, when it comes 
to the unity of the body in the essentials, in the creeds, in the doctrinal truths that we can see clearly in Scripture, in the person and work of Jesus, in His virgin birth, that He is the only way to salvation, that He is coming again. Those are things that we fight over. Those are things that you and I should be unified in no matter what your past is like, no matter what your background is like, we should be able to come together and say, this is what it means to believe in the person and work of Jesus. And we won't fight over those things. We will be unified in those things. Man, that's my hope for Mission Church. We can disagree on a ton of stuff, even about the Bible, about parenting, about going to movies. I mean, my grandmother believed it was wrong for a woman to wear pants. Okay? My grandmother believed that it was wrong for her to use vanilla extract because it had alcohol in it. Alright? Um, a lot of my parents, um, you know, ancestors from there, the ladies weren't allowed to cut their hair. Alright? Um, all of these sorts of things can cause major conflict. Don't go to bowling alleys. That's what we were told from our grandparents. Why? Because they sell alcohol there. It had nothing to do with the game, but because they sold alcohol there, you shouldn't go there. Alright? All of these things can cause division. And yet they shouldn't. What we should find unity in is in the person and work of Jesus. The second thing going along with that is that we should have liberty. There is some things that we just, again, we don't know. We need to be careful of. All right? We need to have roadblocks or, or boundaries or guardrails, however you want to put it, around this. We need to be very, very protective about what we're inviting people to go do, go watch. Um, what to drink, what to eat, all of these sorts of things that we're not causing them to stumble. And there are millions of gazillions away, but we should have some liberty in the non-essentials. Third thing, and this is the most important thing, is that in all things, we should have charity. What does that mean? Grace. When a weak brother or weak sister is amongst us, what should be there? Grace. What does he call them over and over again? He is never judging them in this passage saying heaven or hell. What does he say over and over and over again? They're my brother. They're your brother. They're your sister. And we have people who have been following Jesus for a really, really long time. And we have new believers and non-believers in this room. And so when you look at these ideas, it is important to have humility and grace in all of them. Because we're not going to all disagree on everything when we should agree on the main thing. And that's the person and work of Jesus. Okay? Now, when we see this, one of my favorite statements in chapter 14 is this. It's in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Have you ever been so weak that it's been hard to get up? Uh, there was a time, you can't tell, where I was really into running, running half marathons, all this sort of stuff, put in tons of miles, probably between 40 and 50 miles a week on these legs of mine. And there, when I was first starting off, it was miserable, terrible. It's like some of you are going to the gym. Welcome to January. Hope you'll make it till May. Um, when we see this, um, that first week, day is terrible, isn't it? It's called leg day. 
Don't do leg day. All right? It's awful. You can't, I mean, you're walking around like this. Play the next three days. Your, your hind end is sore. You sit down and you're like, oh. People barely bump into you and you're real tender. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's, it's extremely hard. You become weak. And what does the Scripture tell us? That we're weak. And even when we stand before God, we are weak. And yet, what does it say? The Lord is able to make Him stand. See, this is the Gospel. When we begin to look at these ideas, we cannot become arrogant in our knowledge, and we can't boast in our ignorance. And when we begin to view these things in the light of the Gospel, I begin to notice something this week, and that is this. When we look at this, compared to God, compared to the Gospel, every one of us in this room are the weak ones. We're the weak ones. And yet, He is strong. You know, I have also confessionally this week, man, I struggle with some of these things. Because, man, I want everyone to believe on the minor things just like I do. It would be a whole lot easier if you did. I invite you to come and believe like me. All right? I mean, we, in that, what we fight with our children, we want them to believe like us. As a pastor, man, it would be, I want on the minor issues for people to believe like me. It seems like it would be so much easier. And yet, in that, have come to realize in all of these passages that, man, we are the weak ones. That even those of us who have matured um, aren't nearly as mature as Jesus aren't nearly as strong as Jesus. And when you God looks at us, He must look at us and see those weak people. Even those, think, those who think that they are strong are weak. Because see, God, I'm learning this myself, even in my own life, um, has a special place at wanting to see us at our weakest. Because typically it is at our weakest that we see that He is the strongest. That He is the one that is going to literally upheld us. There have been moments in my grief and moments in life where I've laid just a pool of tears and snot and a mess on the ground and yet in that have only needed and have rested assured and trusted in the person and work of Jesus to realize that He is the one that is going to have to lift me up off the ground. Our Strength compared to God's mighty hand is weak. We fight this temptation daily, many times in our head, because um, of, of how many years we, I went to school or, or what, of the, the books that I read, whatever it is, to become very frustrated at ignorance. And yet, in view of the gospel, am humbled because of how ignorant I realize I am. See, the more I know about this, the more it shows me how much I don't know. And yet, I can find rest and assurance and being upheld by the person and work of Jesus because we see that Jesus is, is going to save us from scholarly snobbery, but also biblical ignorance that only Jesus has perfect theology and practice and this is why the gospel is so amazing that God not only died 
for the, um, the, you know, the person out here doing all these horrible things that we like to list, but God also died for really bad theology and, and very bad practice and, and arrogance and in all of those things in between. And that God, even Jesus died for the gray areas of our lives. We are weak, and yet He is strong. I must decrease so that He might increase. We're seeing that one day, above all other things, that we are going to stand not before one another, but we are going to stand before an Almighty God. And so we see in this passage and all over, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, sinners? Jesus welcomes you. If Jesus welcomes you, even in your weakness, what should we do as believers? Welcome you. This church is for doubters and skeptics and scholars. It is for the ignorant and the elite. It is for everyone because Jesus welcomes all of those sorts of people. And so we too must welcome all sorts of people. We can't expect babies to act like elders. But sometimes believers, we become impatient. Yet God has been patient with us, God, Jesus, does not condemn them in their weakness, so we should not condemn them in their weakness. Jesus calls them friend. Jesus calls them brother. Jesus ultimately dies for them. And Jesus, according to this passage, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to God. Ultimately, you will stand before no one except for Him. And if you stand before Him, and He pardons you, you are pardoned indeed. One day, we will stand before God, the throne of God, and give an account to no one else but to God. The Gospel, the good news, for those of us who are saved and put our trust in Jesus. That is a glorious, glorious day. So, brother, sister... May you be reminded of this gospel. May you be reminded of this truth today. To look with, upon each other in unity. To show uh, great charity and grace and mercy toward people who do not belong with you. As we go through this life sharpening one another to realize in all of that. The, the greatest New Testament scholars on the planet compared to God are weak. Maybe you are struggling with your faith today, maybe you are doubting, I want to encourage you to doubt your doubts. Everything you believe isn't true. But everything that God reveals about Himself is. So we must preach that truth, preach that gospel. Some of you are weak in your sin. You've gone way liberty. You have been um, you know, a libertarian in your sin today. You have drifted towards sin. You have become weak in temptation and sin. And yet God is saying to you today, Welcome in. You are weak. Come home. Believer, you've become arrogant or looking down on people or not being patient with them. And I know, I know for self because I'm very passionate about the gospel and theology and teaching the Bible. And that can automatically come across as, as being overwhelming and, and pushing away. And, and I understand that. But I, I hope and pray that God will continue to work in me a, a patience toward people and, and allowing to me to love them where they are because Jesus loves me where I am. And that's not very impressive. But the Gospel is so impressive. And in view of the Gospel, if we keep Gospel at center, 
of our private and public lives, then we as Mission Church can stay on mission. Remember the gospel today. The gospel that saves the weak and the broken. Let us not forget that the strongest one of all became weak, became a man to deliver weak people. And what does the Scripture say? That in Him, what? We have become strong. That we have great might. Not in our own strength, but in His. And that has been given to us. If you would, stand with me today and let us pray.